0: We're uh, meditating this evening on the first half of chapter 3 of Exodus, Exodus 3, 1 to 14, Moses and the burning bush, a dramatic encounter uh, with God. Uh, Sometimes our, our lives can go on in a kind of humdrum fashion, you know, the mundane, succeeding the mundane, and then there's an event, which may be a matter of moments, which alters the course of a life. Man comes home to find that his wife has left him or to hear news of a terminal illness or a foreign posting at work or the expectation of a birth. All of these can be life-changing moments. None can really compare to the, uh, the trauma of Moses' encounter with the Lord uh, at the burning bush. Time has gone very slowly uh, in Moses' life uh, up till now. He left Egypt, remember, he had to flee after slaying the Egyptian uh, slave driver. Uh, he's had 40 years of preparation in the wilderness of Midian. Exodus 2:23, uh, tells us that uh, during the long period, the king of Egypt, died. And the scholars think that the, the king referred to as Moses III, who enjoyed a long reign. Uh, Stephen, when he's speaking about Moses' life, tells us that Moses was 40 years old when he slew the Egyptian slave driver and was forced to flee to Midian. Uh, Exodus 7 tells us that his age is now 80, so he has had 40 years of shepherding experience in midian and during these times there have been 40 years of anguish for the israelites 40 years of mundane routine work for moses 40 years of submitting to the whiplash of the egyptian slave drivers uh, for his people but all the time god is not slumbering god is working out his purposes He has his time. Moses has no inkling that he's in a period of training. All that he's aware of is that he has sheep to look after, a family to raise. God in his providence uh, takes him uh, out of his familiar territory, uh, the territory that he knows well. Uh, He goes to a place uh, called Mount Horeb, on the far side, we're told, of the desert, or the western side of the desert. And as Moses surveys the scene, uh, as he eyes his sheep, he sees something quite extraordinary. There's a bush burning. And the bush keeps on burning. And there's no diminution of the flame. And to one extent, what, on, to, on one hand, it, it was a fairly ordinary sight. Moses would have been used to the the sight of vegetation catching fire in the wilderness. But here was a bush that was burning fiercely, and yet the branches, the leaves, the vegetation on the bush was not being burnt up. The bush itself was not sustaining the flame. Moses was curious, he thinks to himself, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. And a voice addresses Moses from the bush. Verse 2, we're told that uh, it was the angel of the Lord that appeared to Moses. Verse 4, we're told that the Lord spoke to Moses out of the bush. angel of the Lord, the Lord. These aren't two different persons. Uh, they are. This is a kind of common phenomenon in the Old Testament. We see uh, the angel of the Lord referred to as the Lord. It's a, a, an epiphany or it's a, a, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, many scholars think, an appearance of the Son of God before Bethlehem. The Lord calls Moses by name from the bush. Moses. And Moses replies, Here I am. It's a classic call from God for a mission. Uh, Think of the call of Samuel. Very similar uh, expressions. God is going to have Moses lead a mission. He's going to lead the people out of Egypt. Uh, He says of himself, So now... I have come down to rescue them out of the land, the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And that sounds okay by Moses, but then God goes on to say to him, so now go, I am sending you. Moses is to be the one who will mediate God's mission. And we're going to look at the mission of Moses uh, another time. But uh, this evening, we're going to be focusing in on God's revelation to Moses, what God needs to say to Moses about himself, what Moses needs to understand. Because the, the terminus of God's redemption, the end point of his deliverance of the people, will be worship. God is going to save a people in order that they might worship him. And when God says in verse 12, this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt you will worship God on this mountain. It's the end point. So, later on, when Moses says this to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me. This is not some kind of a trick. It's not a a, a way of, of a, it's not a ruse. It's, it's god's intention that uh, his people should be delivered in order to become a worshiping community and the gathering at sinai will be super significant for the the formation of a people and if that is to be the case then moses and the people need to know god he and the people need to be a people who know their god and so before moses is sent he has some vital lessons to learn about the being and character of God. This is going to be one of the most intensive lectures on the doctrine of God that was ever undertaken. Moses is not going to only understand with his mind, he's going to feel in his very being the awesome character of God. It's interesting, isn't it, to speculate how much Moses actually knew at this point. He had been brought up in a pagan household. Jochebed and Amram, his father, would have passed on in the time they had, before he was weaned, the foundations of the faith, and no doubt Jochebed was able to go in on occasion to the palace and she would have reinforced that that training. We don't know much about Jethro's background, but it's likely that he's a priest of the true God. And so uh, there would have been opportunities there to to learn more. But certainly uh, his learning process goes into top gear. It accelerates uh, rapidly in this encounter in the desert. And that day Moses learned lessons about the holiness of God, about the compassionate nearness of God and about the covenant sovereignty of God. God's holiness, His nearness, and His sovereignty. First, then, the holiness of God, the lessons that were learned from the bush. This this picture of a bush on fire without being consumed has enthralled Christians. Uh, Calvin saw it as a picture of the, the true church coming through the flames of persecution without being destroyed. And in 1691, uh, the Church of Scotland, uh, which had come through a period of, of persecution, had been the, the covenanting times, and uh, when the 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 church enjoyed uh, state recognition in 1691 this uh, this was the symbol that the church used following calvin but uh, it is more a, a picture of the character of god than the nature of the church it's a picture of the glory of god the shining forth of the excellencies of god The perfections of God, His purity, wisdom, justice, goodness, and truth. God's majesty is often portrayed in the scriptures as bright light, or in this case, as a flame. It displays God's power. Who but God has the power to to create this phenomenon a bush that burns without being consumed? Uh, The the very phenomenon of, of burning without. Needing anything to fuel it uh, was a picture of God's self-sufficiency. God does not require uh, anything outside of himself. God never runs out of fuel. His glory never dims. His power never fades away. He doesn't need anyone to create him. He simply is the all-sufficient eternal God. And God himself will speak into that later on as he speaks of his name. But above all, uh, beyond it being an expression of his glory and his self-sufficiency, it's a picture of God's holiness. When God says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's not that the ground in itself is holy. You know, there's there's an idea that buildings are holy and places are holy and so on. That's not a biblical idea. God is holy. And God comes and he makes things holy by his presence. And he calls things to be set apart and therefore holy unto him. When the Bible says that God is holy, it means that he is totally separate from us. He is wholly other, completely other. Holiness is not just God's righteousness, although his righteousness is part of his holiness. It is his otherness. It's the distinction between the creator and the things he has created. God is set apart from all else. And Moses sees this strange sight and he is drawn toward it. Notice that. he's drawn. His curiosity uh, is, is piqued and he thinks I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up there is an attraction to the sight indeed god calls out to moses 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 and no sooner does moses move towards the bush but god says stop no further take the shoes from off your feet for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground moses i mean put yourself in moses uh, i was going to say moses shoes (laughs) he must have been terrified don't go any further stay right where you are when i was studying in uh, in the states in philadelphia there was a time when um, my parents came over and we took a trip up to new england and we borrowed uh, a friend's station wagon, as they called them, and uh, we were making our way up to New England, and there was this stretch. uh, It was on a downhill slope, and it had a 50-mile-an-hour speed limit, uh, which I had clearly transgressed because a a police car, which had been hidden in a slip road, uh, came out with its blue light flashing and, and the siren going. I pulled in and made to get out of the car and to go and speak to the police officer but as soon as I opened the door slightly to get out the police officers voice blared at me from uh, the loudspeaker stay in your car do not leave your car and I'm sitting in a car absolutely trembling thinking I'm going to jail <laughs> I haven't even sat my exams I'm going to be deported uh, fortunately, it was quite obvious that we were not from these parts and uh, we were waved on. But we were, I was stopped in my tracks. When Moses heard that voice from the Lord, don't come any further, he would have been terrified. He would have been rooted to the spot, frozen in terror. And this is of the nature of holiness. Holiness uh, both attracts us, And repels us at the same time. Holiness says, come here. There is a beauty, there is an attraction in holiness that we long for. And holiness says, keep out. Don't come any further. We're drawn to God's holiness. And there will be this recurring theme in Exodus where Moses will be asking to see God's glory. And time and time again he'll he'll find out that he can only uh, see uh, reflections as it were of God's being. The psalmist longs to behold the beauty of God's holiness in his temple. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord to seek him in his temple. There's the attraction of holiness. But the dilemma of holiness is that we were made to, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. This was our, our destiny. This is the, the end for which we were created. Uh, like Adam, who shared fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden, but we have fallen into sin. And in our unholy condition, It's no longer safe for us to come into the presence of a holy God. In fact, the holiness of God makes us feel really uncomfortable. It shakes us up. Let me give you three examples of of how that works. Uh, Think, first of all, of Isaiah, the prophet in the temple. Uh, It's a very similar situation, actually, because Isaiah is going to be called... Uh, in the temple and before he's called he first needs to know his god before we can serve we must know we must first know god and isaiah's vision is of the holiness of god and it affects every part of his being he sees he feels uh, he smells the, the 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 incense filling the temple every one of his senses is impacted and his re- response his reaction He feels, as it were, unzipped. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Think about Peter. Peter's been on an all night fishing expedition uh, with zero results. Jesus tells uh, Peter and his colleagues to go back and throw their nets into the waters again. The boat nearly sinks with the quantity of fish caught. Most men would have been uh, laughing their way all to the bank. Instead, Peter realizes that he has seen the holiness of God. and his reaction, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. The repulsion of holiness. Holiness draws us, and at the same time, it says, "Stay where you are." Modern example. Sometimes uh, it's a case that non-Christians, uh, when they're in the company of, of Christian people, uh, they they're aware that there's something of the the aroma of, of God uh, present. A few years back, one of the leading pro golfers in America was invited to play in a foursome uh, with uh, Jack Nicholas, Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, uh, and Gerald Ford, who was then the, the president of the USA. And this uh, golfer, you know, he had reached the heights. Uh, he had played with Nicholas before. The people he was a little bit... Uh, in awe of playing with, were the President and Billy Graham. After the round was finished, uh, one of the other pros came up to the golfer and asked, "Uh, hey, what was it like playing with the President and Billy Graham? And the pro golfer unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And he stormed off and went over to the practice tee and he just uh, got rid of all his his passion and his his anger at hammering at golf balls. His friend watched from a distance until he observed him cooling down somewhat and then he went over to speak to him. I said, was Billy a little rough on you out there? And the man heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, you know, not really, he didn't even mention religion. Wasn't well, that amazing? Billy, Billy Graham didn't have to even mention religion to make this man feel intensely uncomfortable because he was a man who was so associated with the things of God that this other uh, professional golfer who was clearly in flight from God found himself profoundly uncomfortable in the presence of one who walked with God. And that's holiness. It exerts a fascination, but it also repels. Come here, stay there, it says. First lesson that Moses had to learn was the holiness of God. Secondly, Moses learns about the compassionate nearness of God. Uh, God is holy, uh, and in that sense, he is apart from us. Holiness is otherness separatedness. God is transcendent. He is above and beyond us. But that doesn't mean that God uh, is not willing to come near us, or God is not interested in us. God condescends to save. He does not need us. His holiness threatens us, and yet he desires to save us, and is ready to come down and identify himself as our god i am the god of your father the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob god is a god who is unashamed to identify himself with these poor feeble sinners which is what all of moses forebears were and furthermore he's a god who has compassion on these sinners and sees them in their agonies and wants to come and to lift their burden. And speaking about the plight of the Hebrews, God's attitude is summarized in in the verbs of verses 7 and 8. I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I have come down. The movement of God's compassion. What an amazing God. He is of purer eyes than to behold Iniquity, And yet he's moved with compassion. And he spans the great divide between glory and the squalor of earth to save a rabble that was this people of Hebrews. You know, when God's people, when, when we suffer as Christians, sometimes we have this mistaken idea that our, our problem or issue is so unique you know, we're always suffering in a way that is, is unique. Nobody has any inkling into what I'm going through at the present time. <coughs> and therefore, God doesn't understand me. It's so wrong. God sees. He hears. He knows. Even then, we might be tempted to think, well, God knows what I'm going through because he is on this side, but he's not really concerned. He's up there and I'm down here. But again, this gives a lie to that. God is concerned. God is entering into their anguish. I am concerned about their suffering. It couldn't be clearer. And still God goes on. I have come down to rescue them. Plenty of people uh, can be sympathetic with what you're going through and yet be uh, unwilling or unable to do anything about it. But God acts... He comes near, he comes down and he promises to bring them out of one land and into another, to bring them out of the land of slavery out of Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey And we've been thinking of that great movement uh, of the cross especially at this time the movement of God who came down to earth from heaven who is God and Lord of all, who made his his cradle in a manger, who had no home to call his own, who went to the cross of Calvary. He saw, he knew, he acted. He has come down to us in Christ. You know the Negro spiritual Him. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows. Jesus. Jesus knows. Moses learns at Horeb that God is high and holy. He's transcendent, but he's also the near God, the God who knows and cares and acts. Then God's third revelation was the revelation that he gives through his name. God reveals his name to Moses and reveals himself as the the God of covenant sovereignty. Moses uh, says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. This is a key section in our understanding uh, of lots of the Old Testament. Um, in verse 15, the word the Lord that we have in the NIV, Lord capitalized. Uh, this is a word that the translators have used to translate four Hebrew consonants, uh, Y-H-W, the equivalent. Now, when, the, when the, the Old Testament was riddle, originally written in Hebrew, uh, there were only consonants. There were no vowel points. They were simply deduced, and it was later on that the vowel points were added. So all you had were the consonants, Y-H-W. And to add to the, the mystery, the Jews regarded this name as so sacred that they never pronounced it anyway. We believe that the, that the, the, vo- the vowel pointing <coughs> means that the, the word uh, should be pronounced Yahweh, which means he is or he will be. So when God is speaking of himself uh, in uh, the earlier verses, he says, I am. I am who I am. And when we speak of God, we're saying he is. He will be Yahweh. And every time you come across Lord uh, in the Bible, which is in capitals, it's that word Yahweh that uh, it's being referred to. This is the the name by which God has revealed himself. And so there's something going on when the the writers who have had a a, a few names for God uh, to choose from have chosen this particular word for God. What is Yahweh? What is the word I am or, or he is or he will be? What's it telling us? Well, it's telling us for one thing, and this is kind of obvious, that God is incomprehensible. Um, we say that God can be known because God reveals himself. He is only known because he makes himself known. Unless God do that, even the even the created order would not tell us anything about God unless God had made himself known through the things that are god must make himself known but though he can be known truly we cannot follow god we cannot comprehend god we cannot grasp up together and say ah now i understand god god is above and beyond us and it's always a salutary lesson for us always to be reminded of that the very name. Reminds us of the mysteriousness of God, the incomprehensibility of God. He is altogether other. He can't be fitted into our categories. And then there is the, 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 the indication again, which is reflected in the bible that he simply is. He doesn't come into being, but he simply is. doesn't rely on anything to bring him into to being. You know the, the, uh, the question that's something asked by the atheist or either by the, the atheist or the little child, who made God? And it's, it sounds like a clever question, you know, it's the, uh, the, uh, the decisive question. And the question, of course, is quite irrelevant because God is. God is, by definition, he has not come into being. But he always has been there. All of us owe our existence to what's gone before us or what's happening to us now. You know, if we were asked about ourselves, well, you know, I am uh, the way I am, because, well, I, I was born into this family with this kind of genetic background, or I had these influences on me when I was growing up. And that's made me the way I am. But these categories don't apply to God. God simply is. He is the one true God. And we see that uh, it's, it's a word from God which is, if you like, an exposition of the burning bush. It's unpacking what Moses has already seen. That appearance which has so traumatized God is now being unpacked by God himself in the giving of his name. I am that I am. I have no beginning. I will have no end. I require no one to give me life. Nothing sustains me. I simply am. I have existence in myself. He's Yahweh. The God who is. And if it's interpreted by what Moses has already seen in the burning bush, it's also understood in terms of what God is about to do. He's about to redeem his people. God gives his name in the context of him telling Moses that he is about to redeem a people. He is about to enter a covenant to redeem Israel. And so the the name is God's covenant name. Whenever we see Lord in capitals representing Yahweh, we are reminded of the fact that God is a God who sovereignly makes promises to deliver his people. He is the covenant God. This is our God. And this God has come in Jesus. The I am takes flesh. There are several occasions when Jesus identifies himself using the divine name, a number of times. One of uh, Jesus' disputes with the Pharisees, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And then we have it when he is on the verge of going to the cross. Jesus is in Gethsemane, and the soldiers and officials of the chief priests and the Pharisees come for him, and Jesus goes out and he asks them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, I am he, Jesus responds. And immediately they fall back. The uttering of the, the divine name itself is enough to, to repel them. And it's as though Jesus is saying to them, I come and offer myself to be bound and taken and led to the cross, but know whom you are binding. Great I Am goes to the cross. Here's the Easter mystery. The great I Am has taken human flesh so that the immortal might be clothed in mortality and die. He has heard the groaning of a people under sin. He has seen our situation, how we're on the ground and helpless. He's touched by the pathos of our situation. He's come down to earth from heaven, who is God and Lord of all. The incomprehensible, eternal, all-sufficient Son who had no beginning and will have no end took flesh. And on a hill outside of Jerusalem, the incarnate Son brought about an exodus for sinners. How do we respond? respond with praise and adoration and belief and faith obedience. May God bless to us the preaching of his holy word. Amen.